Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Here to tell us what's going to happen in 2017, or at least what might happen, is Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab and Company, joining us from San Francisco. Lizanne, always a pleasure. Tell us your outlook for the S&P 500. Let's start with earnings, and then we can talk about valuations. So, um, well, both in, in earnings and um, in terms of market performance, we don't publish uh, targets. I actually think that that's a bit of a silly exercise. But if you look at the consensus right now for corporate earnings, it's about 13% growth year over year for calendar year 2017. What's interesting about that number is most analysts that do publish forecasts haven't yet incorporated in the potential benefit either from regulatory reform or tax reform, infrastructure spending, or maybe the combination of all of those. So I think there's potentially upside. Um, there's also some downside because analysts naturally get a little bit too, uh, too optimistic. But I think the net is, is going to be fairly positive. In terms of economic growth, clearly we saw a lift up in economic activity in the second half of 2016. So I actually think the rally that we got in the stock market had as much to do with that, and much of that predated the election. So I don't think it's pure election-related. And I think we are looking at a pro-growth administration. My concern, and I think it was exacerbated by the press conference yesterday, is that the protectionist part of the policy platform is starting to move up the, the spectrum in terms of, of likely action in 2017. And I think that would be an offset to some of the more positive uh, components of the, uh, of the plan. You know, we hear a lot about the rotation out of bonds and into stocks. Do you believe that this is happening? And what are you looking for to sort of indicate uh, whether there is sort of more upside in stocks at the behest or at the detriment to the detriment of bonds. I, I think it's it's too soon to suggest that a, a new trend is in place, i.e. the great rotation has kicked in. Uh, you saw about three weeks of pretty steady inflows into the U.S. equity market, combining both mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. But in the last week, that's actually faltered, and you've gone back into negative territory. So it's a, you know, it's a nascent shift, and I think too soon to suggest that this is going to be a big story in 2017. The good news is, is that if you look further back, if you look through that, this entire bull market, not a single net new dollar of money has come into the U.S. equity market, even if you include ETFs into the you know, funds category. So there's still a lot of runway ahead of us for that to be a lift for uh, the market. I, 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 you know, the fact that we got three weeks of inflows is a good thing, but it also shows you how quickly sentiment can shift, given that in just the last week, during this period of consolidation for equities, kind of investors turn tail again. So it, it has the potential to be a positive story. It's, uh, I think it's a little early. Well, how attractive do equities have to be in order to attract that money? I was just taking a look at the price-to-earnings ratio for the S&P 500. If you bought it today, you're paying a 21 multiple. Well, that's on trailing earnings, uh, and nothing wrong with looking at trailing well, you don't, multiples. Yeah, because you don't know what's going to happen in the future, no, you as you don't, just said. But, but when you are at an inflection point in earnings, and your trailing earnings incorporates a couple of quarters of an earnings recession, I think that artificially deflates the E and the PE equation. And I think it is important to look, in conjunction with trailing valuations, look at forward valuations. And on a forward PE basis, you're more like 17. That's a little bit north of the long-term median, but in the 
current inflation environment we're in, assuming it doesn't really kick in from here, multiples have actually typically traded above where we are right now. So uh, I also think valuation is the eye of the beholder. We're talking about traditional P.E. ratios. You can look at price to book. You can look at inflation-adjusted measures like the rule of 20, the Fed model. You can look at even further trailing numbers like Schiller Cape. And I, I promise you that no matter what your view is on the market, I can find you a valuation metric that perfectly supports that view. And that view could be anything from extreme uh, bearishness to extreme bullishness. Liz, you know, the flip side of where, what's a good entry point for stocks is, at what point is it does it make sense to get back into bonds? I'm looking at a 10-year yield at 2.3%. Uh, some asset managers have called for 3% 10-year yields uh, by the end of this year. I mean, at that level, do you think that that would be a buy? I don't think it should ever be a level. I don't think investing should ever be about get in and get out. That those are those are gambling on a moment in time, and investing should always be a process over time. So I would use the tried and true rules around rebalancing. And what rebalancing does is it lets your portfolio tell you when it's time to do something. If your bond allocation has gotten out of whack relative to what your normal target should be, and that's a function of your risk tolerance and time horizon and need for income, et cetera, et cetera, then your portfolio tells you you want to make that adjustment. To pick some arbitrary level on the yield to say, time to get back in and bond, again, that's gambling on a moment in time, and investing should never be about that. Where is this money going to come from, central banks or from actual investors? Oh, I think from from actual investors. Keep in mind that if you look over this entire bull market, retail investors have not been um, very active. We talked about that as it relates to fund flows. Hedge funds' net long exposure never got much above the low 50s in this entire bull market. In past bull markets, you would expect that to get up into the mid-60s. Pension funds have not, traditional pension funds, have not been big buyers. So really the only game in town has been companies buying back their own stock. In an environment where you haven't had a robust IPO market, it's a simple supply demand. So I think there's a, a lot of room for investors of every variety, different cohorts of investors, to up their equity uh, exposure. I wouldn't expect it in a straight line, nor would I want it to be. I think, you know, we started to, to get a sense of a melt-up um, until this recent consolidation phase. And as, as lovely as melt-ups feel while they're happening, assuming you're long, uh, they don't tend to end well. So this kind of two steps forward, half a step back is actually a pattern I would love to see continue in 20. Liz, you mentioned pension funds and, and what they may do. Yesterday, Calper's CIO was on Bloomberg Television, and he was talking about how uh, he was hoping to rotate about $30 billion of money that's currently managed by external managers, private equity firms, hedge funds, uh, and make it internally managed. Do you think that that's a good idea? Or, or, and also, do you think that that's going to be a trend that takes hold? Well, um, I, yeah, I think it's a trend that, that has already occurred. I think you already hit the inflection point for endowments, foundations, institutions, pension funds that um, shifted uh, for, for many years over the past uh, decade or so, shifted significantly away from the public markets toward the private markets, whether it was you know hedge funds or uh, venture capital or private equity or, or um, real estate funds. But that pendulum has already started to swing back. And in the case of hedge funds, the interesting thing about hedge funds is a lot of people put them in a category of alternative investments. Yet if, if you have an investment in a hedge fund and that hedge fund is buying 
equities, either on the long or short side, that's your exposure. That's not an alternative asset. It's a an alternative way to get exposure to the equity asset class. So I think there's also a rethinking of how we categorize hedge funds. And if they're purely equity, that's how you, you have to incorporate that into your equity exposure. I think it's the fee problem, limited performance, higher fees, that's been the real rub. Thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab & Company, talking about her outlook for this year. Well, another sort of sad story is in the biotech industry. There's a uh, story on the Bloomberg Terminal this morning talking about the mood of shock and disbelief at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco as they listened to President-elect Trump talk about how he's going to take a hard line with his negotiations with uh, pharmaceutical companies. I want to bring in Max Neeson, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, to sort of shed some light on why perhaps this shouldn't have come as a surprise to these pharmaceutical executives. Max, I mean, this is not uh, unexpected, right? I mean, you were to call them about this. Uh, several of them, in, in fact. Uh, I, I, it really does bewilder me, uh, the extent of the surprise. During the campaign, Trump uh, repeatedly mentioned that he wanted Medicare to be able to negotiate drug prices and, and push them down. Uh, back in December, he made another comment about how uh, he didn't like how the way that drug prices were going. Uh, what's really worrying for the sector, I think, I think that kind of explains some of the extent of the reaction, is the fact that he really seems to be escalating both his rhetoric and um, to some degree the specificity going from just I don't like drug prices to we're going to change the bidding process, a policy that in fact many feared that Hillary Clinton would actually try to bring about if, if she had been elected. Well, just looking at some of the stocks today, other than Merck, and we're going to get to that in a, in a second, uh, but uh, Pfizer down 1%, Bristol-Myers uh, Squibb down about three-quarters of a percent, AbbVie is down about a quarter uh, of a percent. Although yesterday, the declines were much more severe. It was a uh, much Indeed, I was just looking yeah. to see whether anyone said, oh, these are bargains now. Johnson & Johnson uh, down about uh, half a percent right yeah, now. Yeah, of course, the NASDAQ Biotechnology Index, which I'm looking at right now, down six-tenths of a percent, which, <laughs> considering how much stocks are down today, basically in line with the market, and that's after a 3% decline yesterday. Although, uh, Max, how much is that due to Merck? Because Merck uh, shares are up. Um, yeah, Mer Merck is kind of the, the sole outperformer on a kind of a specific piece of drug data that was uh, so good that it seemed to overweigh the kind of broader industry. Lung malaise. cancer. Yeah, lung cancer. It's actually a really huge deal for them. Um, they have a, a so-called immune oncology drug. It sort of unleashes the immune system against lung cancer. And the news they got is that it might be approved in combination with chemotherapy in a far broader subset of patients. Right now, it can only be used in about 25% of them whose tumor has a specific mutation. If they get this approval by May, which is well ahead of anything competitors can hope for, uh, it'll be about a year ahead of expectations and massively increase their market size. Can, can I just put, ask you a little bit about this? Because you mentioned the approval process, and uh, we have yet to hear who is going to be the head of the Food and Drug Administration. Does anybody that you talk to expect big changes in the way that drugs are approved now that, that there's going to be a, a new president? Um, there, there can be a kind of a really big swing on that, depending on, on who gets put in charge. There have been sort of two names, two very different names uh, put up, one of whom is a, a former kind of Peter Thiel associate 
who has some pretty, I mean, I would describe them as just wacky ideas that he's espoused in the past on drug development, that you should approve drugs just based on safety. If they're safe. Right, if they don't hurt people. If they don't hurt people, and yeah. who but, is this? Um, I'm, you know, I'm right, I'm gonna, name, we'll but, find that before. Okay. And then the second, who is also being concerned? Um, it's kind of a more doctrinaire ex-FDA official who just, you know, he's, he's a little bit more conservative, but he's not going to dramatically shake up uh, the kind of way things are done, I'd imagine, if he replaces uh, Mr. Califf. How much do you think that the there are conversations going on in the back offices of pharmaceutical companies right now about how to uh, take back the news cycle from President-elect Trump? I mean, it seems like all he has to say is, we're going to negotiate really hard, and, and their, their share is just plummet. I mean, can they do anything to kind of take charge? I, I the think they absolutely can. I, I think you've already seen some of these moves from a couple of companies kind of advocating creating self-policing, self-restriction on drug price increases, notably Novo Nordisk, uh, Allergan, and then just yesterday, AbbVie pledged to not take uh, take only a single drug price set of drug price increases this year and limited to less than 10%, which is kind of, um, you know, not exactly altruistic, but definitely uh, a step down from what had become the industry norm of kind of biannual price increases uh, in, in excess of 10%. The name you're... The name you're looking for was Jim O'Neill. Jim right? O'Neill, Jim, yeah. Jim O'Neill, uh, who is uh, at the event, at the capital management firm, uh, Mithril uh, Capital, which was uh, founded by, as you said, Peter Thiel, the uh, once uh, founder of PayPal and uh, one of the backers of Facebook. Yeah, that's the name. And, and also uh, another tick on his resume is uh, he's a member of the board of uh, the Seasteading Institute, which are uh, libertarian sea platforms, which kind of... Uh, dovetails with his view on uh, approvability of drugs uh, in a kind of liber- libertarian fashion. And just to close the loop on Merck and their lung cancer drug, lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in both men and women in the United States and worldwide. Well, it's specifically China. China has got a very big problem. Well, and in the, Uni- the, in the United States, lung, lung cancer is responsible for 30% of cancer deaths. This is more than breast cancer, colon cancer, and prostate cancer combined. About 155,000 people die each year from lung cancer. So that would be a big breakthrough for Merck. Really will be. Huge market. Thanks very much. Mac Neeson, Gadfly, expert in pharma. We've been hearing a lot about how the Senate is currently talking about repealing and voting to repeal Obamacare. Uh, But what exactly is going to replace it? I want to bring in Brian Rye, senior health care policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who's been closely following uh, the proceedings in Congress. Brian, I hear a lot about the repeal of Obamacare. What exactly is Congress going to replace it with? I guess that's the key question uh, that everyone's grappling with, and the fact that they haven't come forward with a single plan that everyone supported uh, underscores how difficult the question that is. I think, you know, broadly speaking, what Republicans would want to do is what a lot of politicians want to do, and that's keep the parts of the plan that are popular and eliminate those that aren't. Of course, that's easier said than done. So what I think they'd want to replace it with uh, is a system that allows uh, for more choice. I think they want to combine a combination of uh, some plans that are, have uh, lower premiums, but higher deductibles, sort of the catastrophic plans that right now don't meet a lot of the essential benefit requirements uh, under the ACA or under Obamacare, uh, but a lower premium. And they want to do that to try and draw in a lot of the younger, healthier people that right now aren't, aren't enrolling in 
sufficient numbers uh, to make the risk pools uh, profitable for insurers. You've seen a lot of insurers say they're going to pull out of the exchanges. I think that's the trend uh, that, uh, that Republicans are trying to reverse. Uh, Brian, I'm going to ask you about something uh, much more sort of day-to-day. You know those signs that are posted in restaurants showing the calorie count? I believe restaurants that have more than 20 locations, they were required under the ACI to post this nutritional information. Yes. Are things like that going to go away? Uh, if, if they are, it's probably not going to be as part of this process. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's something that, again, you know, they may direct uh, their, the new administration under the FDA, uh, for example, to either withdraw that guidance or issue updated guidance that, uh, that does that. But that's probably not going to be part of what Congress is doing right now. And that's simply because uh, to avoid a Senate filibuster uh, recognizing the math problem that Republicans have 52 votes and not 60, um, they're using this budget reconciliation process. And that restricts the things that they can really target under this uh, repeal effort, the things that are only budget-related, uh, so taxes, uh, penalties, the Medicaid expansion, anything involving federal funding. But a lot of those regulations, such as the one you just referenced uh, with the menu, uh, menus and calories, uh, that's something that would have to be addressed separately. Brian, let's say this uh, repeal of Obamacare does pass the Senate. Uh, what happens then? So where we are now is they've last night the Senate uh, essentially passed um, what would be a blueprint that would authorize uh, the various committees to then come up and craft a repeal bill. That has to go to the House now. Uh, they're going to probably address that either tomorrow or over the weekend. And then a couple of committees in each, the Senate and the House, would then go to work and craft a language saying, okay, we're going to repeal these taxes. We're going to repeal these mandates, uh, repeal the penalties for not buying ACA-compliant insurance, uh, those things. And then in a matter of weeks, uh, come back with that. But back to your original question, at the same time, you know, President-elect Trump and a, a growing number of Republicans said, well, we also want to have a bill specifying what we would replace it with uh, in place at the same time to make this simultaneous. If they're going to try and do that, then this process will probably bog down and they'll have to delay the repeal effort while they wait for the replace effort to catch up. Now, this is maybe tangential uh, to the issue of the ACA, but uh, haven't the uh, lawmakers in Washington taken aim at the use of human fetal tissue cells for scientific uh, research? Uh, they, they have. And, you know, there, there are a few different things uh, and, and sort of tangential to that is you know, part of this repeal process. Uh, Speaker Paul Ryan has said that um, they'd like to include, you know, removing federal funding for Planned Parenthood, for example. And, um, and that could potentially complicate uh, their efforts to pass uh, the repeal bill. So, you know, lots of moving parts, but you're right. And I think Republicans who have been targeting uh, those type of provisions for a while feel like that with a Republican in the White House and Republicans retaining control of both chambers, that this is their best chance to advance uh, provisions like that. And isn't one of the ideas with the repeal of Obamacare that states would get less federal funding for Medicaid as part of this uh, and would compel them to negotiate, take a harder line with drug companies? Is that sort of the idea? Uh, you know, it, it could. So there's two different things there. You know, they could repeal uh, the, the Medicaid expansion uh, that was part of the ACA, or you know, maybe have a compromise and, and leave it up to the state, saying if you want to keep it, you can. If not, uh, you don't necessarily have to. Um, but what they'd like to do, I think uh, Paul Ryan's vision is to essentially convert Medicaid into a, a block grant program where we, the federal government, will give each state a pool of money um, to do with as they see fit and, uh, and design their own Medicaid plans uh, with that. That's a harder sell on the drug pricing front. Um, you know, we'll see what uh, Trump's pick eight for HHS right. Secretary Tom Price says right. next week. We got to run. Thanks very much, Brian Ryan. You're going to be following this for us, our senior healthcare policy analyst for the Bloomberg Intelligence government team.
next HBO? Well, looks like they're going to try. I want to bring in John Petridis, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Point View Wealth Management, to give some context to the news that we got uh, this morning by the Wall Street Journal uh, that Apple is planning to create new original television content for its music subscribers. So, John, uh, first of all, what, what's your take on what their plan is to do as far as creating original content? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I guess my first point would be, well, it's about time. Um, when you're a $650 billion company, it's really hard to sell a lot of cool widgets to grow the top line. You have to move into some sort of subscription type of business model in order to grow because it's just, you know, you just can't, the margins on the hardware business just get compressed and it's just, it's very difficult to reinvent and sell new items. So the fact that they're finally catching up or going after Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, understanding that uh, through the Apple TV, which is a portal for them, they can create this original content or with the cash where they have buy content and uh, set up some sort of subscription model where you and I pay Apple, you know, ten, nine, ten dollars a month and get all this content. You know, so I think it's, it's it's a great move for a huge company that needs to uh, change their business model. You know. I- it's interesting that you talked about and you highlighted that they might buy content. I mean, the content world right now is incredibly crowded. You've got, you know, you mentioned yourself, Netflix, Hulu, uh, HBO itself. I mean, everyone is sort of focusing on content. Uh, are you expecting some kind of consolidation? And if so, who might Apple uh, look to purchase? Yeah, it's a good it's a it's a good question. I think they're going to go along the route of uh, building out their own original content. They may not acquire companies, but they may acquire uh, very creative, smart people. Look what they did with Beats by bringing on Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre um, to, to build out on the music platform. So maybe they bring on board uh, really smart people to who are very creative uh, to do their original content. You know, Viacom is a company Company out there that has a tremendous amount of content that's being undervalued. They have Paramount Studios. They own MTV, Nickelodeon, and and all the other sorts that that, that the market is um, thinking traditional TV and the cable model is dead. So you know maybe there's someone like that where they can go up and pick up on the cheap. But I think Apple's first route is going to be um, uh, doing it on their own and maybe hiring and spending a lot of money on really smart people to come out and build it on their own. But, John, isn't the walk of fame littered with those efforts to become a content producer, whether it is in the movie industry, television industry? Is there an example of a company that formerly was not in the business that just flipped a switch and was successful at it? I mean, Amazon is a perfect example, right? I mean, Amazon built its entire bread and butter off of its e-commerce distribution platform, and then through the Fire Stick, uh, has decided to build out its own content. And now, as Prime members, you get access to all that through the, uh, the through the, the the Fire Stick, and you get access to all of Amazon's original content within. But do we know that a- Amazon actually makes a profit on all that content? If you take away that ninety-nine dollar Prime yeah. subscription. Right. Well, that, that's a different story. 
<laughs> well, I mean, uh, the goal supposedly is to actually make money, right? Yeah, I but, mean, but I, there's ways to do it, though. I mean, Apple, if Apple can bundle, right, a, uh, a content subscription with its music and then add in features of, hey, you know, we'll throw in uh, extra storage on iCloud. I mean, there's a lot of other ways to bundle in content where a user, um, where, where maybe Apple's not maximizing each individual user of an iPhone or an iWatch uh, effectively um, to, to get more juice from the lemon. So uh, I think, uh, and again, this is not a very uh, capital-intensive type of build-out. Think about the other projects that have been thrown out that Apple may get into, such as cars. And I was never a believer into the, the car model, but good luck in terms of building out manufacturing facilities, uh, dealing with unions for auto workers. I mean, that was a, a capital-intensive venture that people were trying to throw out there if Apple would compete with Tesla that I just didn't think made any sense at all. What's the key audience that you think that they're going to try to target here? Well, I think clearly the millennials are changing the way the way they view TV. I mean, my kids are nine and a half and six and a half, and they probably watch more YouTube and Netflix than uh, when they're allowed to watch TV than uh, anything else. Um, they, they don't even know. They don't have any. Uh, you know, they're not. They're not tied to the traditional TV model that say you and I were all uh, brought up with. So the idea of you can watch what you want when you want, and Apple has the key here is Apple has the ITV platform, right? You have that portal where you could download apps, and it could work seamlessly with all of your other Apple devices and have your pictures on there and your music. So. Uh, by doing this, I think it's one of the key ingredients to capturing um, the entire uh, end user's uh, you know, media habits. Thanks very much for being with us. John Petridis is a managing director, portfolio manager, point of view wealth management, based in Summit, New Jersey, speaking about Apple and its potential to get into the content business. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.